Thank you for that great singing this morning as we sang praise to the Lord. I pray that you meant that from your heart, just not words. God is great and he is faithful to us and his mercies are new every morning, as Jeremiah said. Take your Bibles and turn over to the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke chapter number 10. Luke chapter number 10. And we're going to jump in from where we were last week. I was reading this summer a book called The Lost City of the Monkey God. The story of a National Geographic expedition into the deepest part of the Honduran jungles in search of the legendary Ciudad Blanca, the white city. The claim was that the city had not been found or plundered by the Spanish conquistadors. Uh, There was no knowledge of any modern explorer going back to the Spanish in the 1500s ever going into this region of Mosquitia. It was unknown. Actually, through LIDAR equipment in 2012, scientists were able to map out under the jungle floor man-made structures. So they sent a group of archaeologists, scientists, geologists, and a film crew into the region that had not been explored. They hired an ex-British military group to protect them and lead them through this dangerous region. They would be dropped in by helicopter, and left for no longer than 14 days. In the hotel, far from their final destination, the leader of this expedition, this military ex-soldier, became brutally honest with those on the expedition of what they would face. Here's an excerpt from the introduction of the book. We would be the first researchers to enter this part of Mosquitia. None of us had any idea what we would actually see on the ground, shrouded in the dense jungle in the pristine wilderness that was not seen human beings in living memory. He opened the briefing by telling us his job was simply to keep us alive. We had to be careful even before we even entered the jungle. Uh, Catacomas was a dangerous city controlled by violent drug cartels. No one was to leave the hotel without an armed escort. As far as the hazards we would uh, face in the jungle, venomous snakes were on the top of the list. The Fuhr de Lance is said to be a pit viper, and it kills more people in the New World than any other snake. It comes out at night and is attracted to people and activity. It is aggressive, irritable, and fast. Its fangs have been observed to squirt venom for more than six feet, and they can penetrate even the thickest leather boot. The venom is deadly. If it doesn't kill you outright through brain hemorrhage, it will eventually kill you later through sepsis. Next came a lecture on the disease, bearing insects that we might encounter, including mosquitoes and sandflies, chickers, ticks, and what they call kissing bugs, because they like to bite your face. Scorpions, bullet ants, whose bite equals the pain of being shot with a bullet. Perhaps the ghastliest disease epidemic in Mosquitia was leishmaniasis, sometimes called white leprosy, caused by the biting of the infected sand flies. We heard about scorpions and spiders climbing into our boots at night. We were to store our boots upside down on stakes driven into the ground and shake them out every morning. He spoke of vicious red ants that swarmed in the understory and which at the slightest trembling of a branch would shower down like rain getting into our hair, going down our necks and biting like mad, injecting a toxin that would require immediate evacuation. In addition to hiding insects and tree-climbing snakes, many plants sport thorns and spikes that can draw blood. We were to wear gloves while in the jungle, preferably the scuba kind, which do a better job preventing entry of, of the spines. Uh, we, he warned us how easy it was to get lost in the jungle after a matter of wandering even just 10 or 15 feet. We were issued whistles as soon as we thought we might be lost. We were to stop, blow a distress signal, and wait to be fetched. I paid close attention, the author writes. I say that as an introduction Because this is the type of meeting that Jesus is having with his special forces in Luke chapter 10. This group of no-name disciples numbering 70, divided into pairs, 35 of them. 
he told them what they would face. We talked about this in the first couple verses last week about that they were to be divided up and they were to go into the cities before His face presenting Him as the Messiah preparing them, these villages, for His coming. He has told them the task is going to be difficult. The harvest truly is great but the laborers are few. In other words, the number of people that they would be facing would be hard and blind and lost in darkness, going in such great numbers, and yet there would be so few of them. Many will shut the doors in their face and not allow them to come in. These few laborers, this small group, even though there are 70 of them, would be far outnumbered. And they were to plead and pray with the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth. He would draft. He would dispatch even more laborers into his harvest. This mission is going to be hard. It's going to take a lot of hard work. Laborers, harvest indicates hard work. And he says this mission is not only going to be hard, it's also going to be dangerous. Look at verse 3. In this commissioning, he says, go your ways. Behold, I send you forth as lambs among wolves. Let's ask God's blessing in the service today. Father, I pray that you would help in this lesson that we will see this morning. Help us to realize the danger that we face. It is a difficult task. But we have all that we need. Even in... um, in the mission that you've given each one of us, wherever we are placed, our neighborhood, our jobs, our families, school, um, wherever we go, we have a commission to go and present the face of Jesus Christ, the lost and dying world. We have all that we need. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. The task is dangerous, Jesus had said in this verse. I am sending you forth as lambs among wolves. Jesus is pointing out the dangerous road ahead of them. Yes, it's not going to be easy. It's, not, it's going to be hard work. It's going to take laborers in the harvest field, harvesting, and you're going to be outnumbered, and uh, the odds are going to be against you. But I'm also sending you like sheep, like lambs, amongst wolves. In other words, they're going to walk into, if I can use another analogy, the lion's den. Do you know what wolves do to sheep? This is not good for children's church. Let me ask you, what do cars do to deer? Right. He was coming down 53 here in one of those semi-trucks. Right. Got a hold on one of those things. I also, on my way to church, I often watch a hawk that um, perches on the power lines just on Mount Lebanon there. See him pretty regularly. Do you know what happens when one of those things get a hold of one of those nice, furry, fluffy, little baby rabbits? It's not very nice. My kids were watching National Geographic the other day, and everything was okay until the lion started chasing the baby wildebeest. My two younger ones started to get big, giant, teary eyes one of them was so disturbed they ran out the room and I told the next one I said maybe it's time to turn it back to Tom and Jerry (laughs) (laughs) you see wolves do similar things to lambs that lions do to wildebeests or hawks do to rabbits or 18 wheelers do to deer This is a sobering simile that Jesus gives to his disciples. This is not a picture between two dogs. One is weaker and the other stronger. This is a picture of one ravaging the other. He compares his people to sheep. In fact, not sheep. He uses the word in the Greek, lambs. Little flock, often Jesus would say. My sheep hear my voice. You know, I wish Jesus would have compared us to a different animal. Like a lion. Or maybe a bear. Or eagles. Americans like eagles. Or in Wisconsin, a badger. I mean, wouldn't God's people be really neat if we were a flock of badgers? 
instead of a flock of sheep. In fact, some of us kind of like that. Lambs and wolves are not the pictures that I want to be a part of, especially if I'm on the other end. He chooses lambs. He chooses sheep to picture in the Old Testament his own people and in the New Testament his disciples and his apostles because sheep are vulnerable, because sheep are weak, because we are helpless. Sheep have no natural defenses. They are utterly smashable. We need a shepherd. Sheep need a guide. Sheep need someone to take care of them. We cannot make it on our own and neither can sheep. We are utterly dependent. Sheep can do nothing for themselves except get stuck. My wife showed me a video the other day of a shepherd who was laughing and the guy had the picture and there was this hole in the field and he reached down into the hole and he was laughing as he did it and he pulled out the back legs of this little sheep that had gone head first down this hole and was pulling and jerking and tugging as this little lamb was trying to get back down into the hole. Alone, we are ultimately destructible. I think sometimes we think of ourselves like war horses or like badgers. Or maybe sometimes after lunch we feel like elephants. Sheep and lambs remind us of our need. This is designed to burst our prideful bubble. Don't think, as the Bible says, more highly of yourself than you ought to think. You're nothing but a little lamb. That's key. Jesus is telling his disciples, you are needy. And dip, you, you, you are dependent. You are weak. You are vulnerable. I said, well, what kind of pe a pep talk would that be? I mean, that would utterly just kind of bring them down to a small little minority and, and just take their self-esteem and throw it out the window. And you're getting ready to head them into a task that is difficult and hard, and now you're telling them it's dangerous, and you're going to throw them out among the wolves like lambs? He compares the enemies of God and the enemies of the kingdom of God as wolves. Wolves are vicious. They're dangerous. They roam in packs. They wreak havoc and fear on sheep. Turn over to Acts chapter 8, if you would. This is Luke, again, who is going to reference writing among the early church. And he gives a description of the early church, this church that is, that is being hunted down. And in Acts chapter 8, Luke records the story of Saul. And notice what he says in Acts 8 and verse 3. This is the one who will later become the Apostle Paul. This is pre-conversion. He is now being dispatched as a Pharisee around the area of Judea, going into Damascus and all these areas. And notice what Luke says he is doing. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church. Notice that word havoc. It, in the Greek, it means to tear to pieces. Notice the other part of the verse. Entering into every house, and the King James says, hailing men and women, committing them to prison. The word hailing here means to grab by force and pull delivering them into prison. You know what the Apostle Paul, or the, not the Apostle Paul, Saul, before he became Paul, was doing to the churches who were meeting in houses? He was tearing them to pieces like a wolf would a lamb. Pulling them out of their homes. Separating them from their children and from husbands and wives. And delivering them, throwing them into the prison. What a picture of this conquering church in the New Testament. Not a picture that I would like to see. Makes me a little bit uncomfortable. Why is there so much hatred towards a people like this? Why is there so, let me just say this, why is there so much hatred to a people who are simply living out the golden rule? Who are living out the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering. 
who are just being honest and good citizens, who are establishing and raising families, who are training their children to do right and live right, work hard and proclaim peace and forgiveness to all? Why? Would you tear a family like that apart and throw them in prison? Why would you attack citizens who just want to do what's right and live by the Ten Commandments? Why? Because that's not all the gospel brings. It brings with it a message that we are all sinners short of God's glory and we cannot save ourselves. The gospel brings to it in a society through its people who represent the face of Jesus Christ that we need a Savior and all roads don't lead to heaven. And that we are all broken by sin and we can't get there by ourselves. And to an American culture, an American society that likes to do everything for itself, that doesn't jive well. It brings with it a message that we must accept Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. There is a God who will hold men accountable for their sins if they do not accept Jesus Christ. One day they will stand before a mighty judge who will punish them for their sin. So, there's two sides to this. You, I, I asked myself, why did Jesus give this word, verse? Why didn't he just let them figure it out when, he got, when they got out there? Why in this commissioning does he go down the list and say, Oh, by the way, I'm sending you where there are venomous vipers who will bite you, chase you, and run you down and squirt venom wherever you go. It's dangerous. Oh, by the way, as you're going out preaching this message of peace, I'm sending you like lambs in the midst of hungry wolves. Don't be afraid. That's like telling a three-year-old that they can go through a haunted house and not be scared. Warren Beersby wrote this, Anyone who takes God seriously becomes a target for the devil. Why is Jesus painting a target on their back? Because Jesus is teaching his disciples that they need to depend upon him in the face of opposition. He doesn't tell them it will all be a bed of roses. Jesus is brutally honest. Jesus doesn't say, oh, if you follow the Lord, nothing will happen to you. It'll be all be okay. Your enemies will run away and you won't get hurt. In fact, Jesus says you will walk through a pack of wolves. Jesus is brutally honest with his disciples. You will suffer. Does that make you uncomfortable about following Jesus? I want to tell you it does me. But Lord, if I go down there, they may bite me. I may get eaten up. It may hurt to go down that path. Wolves may chase me and you can't respond. Well, as long as I run faster than James, I'll be okay. Ever heard that joke? You see, Jesus is preparing his disciples for the dangerous path ahead. And some of them won't come out. When you find yourself in a village and the opposition is around you, and you don't see any results that you thought, trust the Lord, even though you're being chased by wolves. That's the preparation, these disciples. Now, not necessarily on this journey, but all of them eventually will face a martyr's death. All of them except one. Interesting, when you follow the Lord Jesus Christ, I can't promise you that there will be no difficulties and no dangers. In fact, I can promise you that if you follow Jesus, you will face difficulties and dangers and hurts. But he will enable you and he will never leave you and he will go before you and he will direct you. And when this life is over and your mission is complete, he will reward you and it will be worth it all. That's what Jesus is telling his disciples. It's no wonder in Luke 
just a few chapters away, but the Bible says, and many of his disciples fled and abandoned him. Because if this is what following Jesus is like, I don't want it. I want to live out the American dream. You know, I want to, I want to have a nice comfortable home and, and I don't want to suffer and I, don't want to, I just want to have some peace and, and safety and, and just want to have my own family and do my own thing. I don't want to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. He had told them in the previous chapter, when you follow Christ, it means you must deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. And by the way, I'm headed to Jerusalem where I will suffer, bleed and die and you're going to head there too. Jesus is honest. We uh, we took the I took the the three younger kids up on Bob Wade Mountain there on on the bike trail, and eventually the bike trail kind of ends there, and then there's a walking trail that goes up, and we were tending just to ride the bikes down to the end and then ride them back and just enjoy uh, you know a September day, and we got all the way to the end, and one of the kids said, "Can we go up? Can we go up the trail?" And I, I kind of looked and said, "Okay." So we got off and said, all right, we're going to go on an adventure. And we're going to go on it. And it's going to be hard. And there's going to be rocks and stones. And we need to watch out for bears. You know, Jed's eyes got real big. Bears. Okay. So that's the way daddies make sure kids behave. Okay. Give them some of those instructions so they stay on the path. All right. Don't wander too far. And so the whole way, we were kind of walking, looking around, and, uh, and, we, and we heard some, um, you know, uh, some calls or whatever, and Jed turned around and said, that's a peacock. And he started doing these peacock noises, you know. <laughs> so there's no bears on Bob Wade in case you, you think there are. I had to ask for forgiveness. <laughs> you know what? We are, in all reality, we are in a world where we are far outnumbered. We are in a world that is filled with wolves who look at us not as just people who keep the golden rule or are following Ten Commandments, but we are viewed as enemies. We are viewed as um, because we carry a message that we are all sinners in need of a Savior. That makes us, that makes people uncomfortable to realize that that they need someone to rescue them. Enough said about that. Um, Jesus then moves on to some instructions in this manual. If you look down in verse 4. As these disciples are going to be jumping into a jungle filled with wolves. He has some instructions for them. And from verse 4 down to really verse 16. Some of these instructions are going to be very similar to what he gave his disciples. In chapter 9 verses 3 and 5. That was the original 12. These instructions are much broader with a a, a larger group. He says a little bit more than what he said to the apostles over in the previous chapter. And I'm sure the apostles are saying, this sounds familiar. We've been told this before. So look what he says in verse 4. Carry neither purse, nor script, nor shoes. Here's what he says here. Basically, he tells them to travel light. A purse was a money bag of provisions. In other words, he says, don't go empty your bank account and take a full cash uh, uh, in your wallet on this trip. The word script here is used. It's the same word that's used in chapter 9 and verse 3. Was, was spoken of as a beggar's sack that was used to collect money. Maybe possibly a, a, a beggar's bag. It was also used for a shepherd's bag that he would put on his, on his pouch that he would take any extra provisions Often seen, maybe somebody like uh, Tom Sawyer or Huckleberry Finn where he would have a stick and on the end of it would be this blanket that was wrapped up and tied. And in that was his provisions, his knapsack. In fact, in the Old Testament, this word is actually used for the little blag that David had when he picked up five smooth stones and he put it in his script, in his little shepherd's bag for extras. He says here, don't take any shoes. Now, this is talking about extra pair of shoes. He's not saying go out barefoot. But he says, don't carry around your closet filled with all your shoes. Take only one pair. How would it look if you were coming into a town and you had a pair of disciples that came in and they brought their seven suitcases load of shoes for every day's occasion? 
What Jesus is saying is he's telling his disciples to travel light. Don't take any extra. Now, this gives me two applications or at least two lessons I think we can learn just practically from this. Hold loosely the things of this world. Sometimes the things of this life distract us because we're living for the here and now. Jesus is sending these disciples out into villages where they have a task to accomplish. They have a mission to do. And Jesus says, don't clutter up your journey with all of this stuff. Travel light. I'm reminded of what Hebrews 12 and verse 1 says. That for those who are running this race, we are to lay aside every weight that can so easily beset us. It could be today that you have so much stuff that you're carrying around in this life that it's distracting you from your relationship with God. Maybe a cell phone. Maybe a cell phone or, or, a, or, 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 or a Netflix series or, or some other thing that may in and of itself not be wrong. But because it is a weight in your life, it is cluttering your life up so it distracts you and you can't even listen for 45 minutes in a service without checking your next feed. Because it's there. And Jesus says for disciples who are headed into a dangerous territory and a difficult task on their hand, it's too serious of a, of a mission to carry on anything else that would distract you. Be serious. I also think that what Jesus is saying here, believe that he is saying that we are to learn to be dependent. Learn to be dependent. I think in American Christianity, we truly don't know what it's like to depend upon God. We can go to the bank account. We can get another credit card. When we come into a financial problem, we, we, can, we can just try and figure out how to get out of it ourselves. Jesus was actually telling his disciples, don't carry any extra cash. Don't empty your savings. Go out with only what you have on your back and the necessities of today and learn to depend upon God. Our closets are full today. Remember this because God gave it to you. You have what you have because it is given by God. You say, well, I have a job. I, I went a long time in, in my career and in my training and my education to do it. Anything you have is because God has blessed you with it. Don't let it master you. Hold it loosely. And don't ever forget that what you do have first and foremost comes from God. So depend upon Him even in your blessing. Even in your provisions. Even in the extra shoes that you have. And the extra uh, money in your bank. Praise God for it, but don't let it master you and drive your attention. Look at verse, uh, in the end of verse 4, he says here, salute no man by the way. Salute no man by the way. I believe what he's saying here is that we are to be single-minded. Salute no one on the way. What does this mean? Is Jesus actually saying to his disciples that they are to be rude? And, and like the little rabbit in Alice in Wonderland to run along and say, I'm late, I'm late for a very important date. Okay, and just go on and move on and just brush everybody off. Is that what he's saying here? Commentaries agree that this terminology that you, Jesus uses here is a terminology meaning a long, tedious salutation that was common in the East. This was not a casual greeting of hello on the street. That's not what Jesus is necessarily saying. He's saying this is a reference to a custom that meant an elaborate greeting that would involve staying a while, talking, sitting down, and making lots of small talk. In other words, what Jesus says is, don't sit down and stop and start chatting for a while. You've got a mission that you are on. Edward points out in his commentary that the same instructions was given by Elijah, Elisha to his servant Gehazi in 2 Kings 4 and verse 29. Do you remember the story when the boy was, uh, went out and got a heat stroke and he died and the mom brought him back in and laid him on the bed and she ran out to find the prophet so he could come back and raise him from the dead? When she finally found the prophet Elijah, Elijah turned around and said, here's my staff Gehazi, run ahead. And he gives him this instruction. He says this, gird up your loins, take my staff in your hand, go your way, and if you meet any man, salute him not. 
Or if you salute thee, answer him not, and lay my staff upon the face of the child. In other words, Elijah was saying, you're on an urgent mission. There is something that's important to do. Don't waste time. The point is your mission is very important. People's lives are at risk and you don't have time to chit-chat and parties and small talk. You have a task that you are doing. Be single-focused, single-minded, and not distracted and don't waste time. I'm reminded of the Apostle Paul who said in his epistle, This one thing I do. I press towards the mark. and Nothing's going to distract me or pull me away from my task of the prize of the high calling in Christ Jesus. So in verse 5 and 6, let's look down here. Into whatsoever house you enter, say, Peace be to this house, and if the Son of Peace be there, your peace shall rest upon it. If not, it shall turn to you again. What is he saying in this verse? He's telling them, obviously, to speak peace. When they enter a house, they are to say peace to that house. This is more than just simply, God bless this home. All right? Coming in there and just doing some kind of thing over the door and going in and then coming out. This is not, this is not just a cliché. A pronouncement of peace. They were carrying a message of peace. What was the peace? They were going and presenting the prince of peace. The one who could come into their village and change their life and bring peace to their home. And if the home was receptive to that gospel, they were to enjoy the relationship of the gospel and the one who carries that gospel. They would either, they would, this peace would either come to their home or it would be rejected. Now listen, I want to tell you this morning, there is no peace to a home that doesn't have Jesus Christ. There is a measure of, of organized organization and there is a measure that even an unsaved home or a home without Christ can, can find um, some measure of safety if they follow certain, um, maybe certain patterns or certain good things or moral lifestyle. There's no such thing as a perfect home. If you were to enter my home, sometimes you would find that it would look probably very similar to yours. Toys on the floor, things around, and we've got to clean up, and we've got to get the kids doing chores, and, and you've got, you got to keep up with those things. That home is lived in. I know some homes, however, that are so ravaged by sin and selfishness that the children can't wait to move out. They hate their home. Maybe you were that way when you were a teenager. You couldn't wait to leave because sin and selfishness, the screaming and the yelling that took place in the home, you couldn't wait to leave. There's no peace in a home like that. I know some of our neighbors on the street whose homes are falling apart. And as their little children come and play at our house to realize what's going on in their home, Listen, just because you put a picture of Jesus on the wall or a Bible verse stenciled over your couch does not mean there is peace in your home. Can I ask you this morning, is Jesus the ruler of your home? Does he live there? Does he have every closet in every room? Is he allowed in? Does he rule your home? I'm not saying do you have a perfect home. I'm saying do you allow Jesus to rule and reign? And when selfishness gets on the throne and the chaos and, and, and peace is thrown out the door, you ask for forgiveness and bring Jesus back in and you ask for forgiveness and allow him then to rule your home. He is welcome to rule your home and Jesus is not just a decoration on your wall. Speak peace to this home. Then he says in verse 7 and 8, In the same house remain eating and drinking such things as ye give, for the labor is worthy of his hire. Go not from house to house. And in whatsoever city ye enter in and they receive you, eat such things as are set before you. So what is he saying in these two verses here? I believe what he's saying is he's telling them to be content. Be thankful. 
Remain in the same house, eat and drink what you've been given. In other words, don't go from house to house, he says. Every worker is worthy of his hire. Remember they were told not to carry any purse, any extra money, or or any extra shoes. Why were they to do that? Because they were to be dependent upon God. And oftentimes, God would provide for them by the homes that they would stay with. He would use other instruments to provide their food and their needs. A place to lay their head. Jesus had just told the disciple earlier in the chapter, foxes have holes and birds of the nest have, or birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus was dependent upon the hospitality of others to take care of him. And now he's sending out his disciples to do the same thing. And the lesson here for the disciples of Jesus was don't be greedy, don't be ungrateful, and don't constantly seek for a better accommodation. Once you're in the house, stay there and enjoy what they give you. Don't be looking next door for better food, better drink, or nicer sleeping arrangements. Be content with what people provide for you. I believe Jesus is just simply telling his disciples, be polite. Hosting people in the first century was one of the most honorable responsibilities in the society. They didn't have hotels like what we would think today. You had to stay with someone. And to have someone in your home and eat at your table was one of the greatest acts of kindness. What an absolute insult when a person refuses to accept what the host has provided. Can I say this, Christians? We should be polite and grateful guests. Christians should be kind and caring hosts. We need to teach our children how to be thankful for what people do for us. It's hard in our society because we have so many choices and we're used to getting what we want. Teenagers learn to say thank you when someone provides something for you. Sometimes we may have to eat something we don't like. It's okay. It won't kill you. You don't have to have your favorite meal every day. You don't have to have your wants fulfilled all the time. I went to a lecture this last week at the teacher's conference on Generation Zers. And whether you like it or not, millennials and Generation Zs are used to getting what we want. And it's fairly inexpensive to do that. Jesus is teaching his disciples to learn to be content with what God gives you. Don't constantly be looking over next door wishing you were over there. Don't be greedy. Don't be, don't be envious. Don't be jealous. Don't be selfish. Don't be rude. Don't be pulling people down. Don't have pride. Be grateful disciples for what has been provided. And then last year he says in these verses 9, 10, and 11, he tells them about dusting their feet. Look at the verse. And he healed the sick, or he says... Going in, heal the sick that are therein, and say unto them, The kingdom of God has come nigh unto you. We mentioned that uh, uh, a week ago. But in whatsoever city you enter, and they receive you not, go your ways out into the streets of the same, and say, Even the very dust of their city which cleaves on us, we do wipe off against you, notwithstanding be uh, ye sure of this, that the kingdom of God is come nigh unto you. Jesus tells them that they will find themselves faced with two different types of villages. Some who will readily accept them and invite them in with a warm welcome and they will call peace and blessing. That's the type of home that will receive Jesus. But others will reject, refuse, and remain closed to the gospel. When you are rejected... Don't be like James and John and call fire down from heaven. Don't hurl insults and call names and get mad. Walk out of the city in front of everyone and dust your feet off and move on. You see, when a Jew traveled into a Gentile area, once they reached the edge of the Gentile city, they were to wipe the dust off of their feet so as not to pollute their home when they walked into their home. That would be like taking your shoes off when you've been walking in the mud. 
And your mom says, hold on a second. Don't come in that front door until you take your shoes off. All right? We've all had that experience before. You don't, you don't want to pollute. And Jesus is telling his disciples, this was a custom to the Jews to leave the place under God's judgment. And when you've walked in and you've accomplished your task, you've brought the message of the kingdom of God, and they reject you, don't take it personal. Wipe the dust off your feet and move on. You see, the kingdom of God has come nigh unto them, and what a shame it is to have the gospel so close, but yet reject. If you bear with me for a few more minutes here in the last few portions of these verses, Jesus actually gives some illustrations in the last few verses in verse 12 down to verse 16. Look at what he says. And I say unto you that it shall be more tolerable in the day of Sodom, in the day for Sodom, than for that city. Woe unto thee, Chorazin. Woe unto thee, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works had been done in Tyre and Sidon, which had been done in you, they had a great while ago repented, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than it will be for you. And thou, Capernaum, which art exalted, you're lifted up to heaven, shall be thrust down to hell. He that heareth you heareth me, and he that despiseth you despiseth me, and he that despises me despises him. That sent me. Jesus pronounces a woe. He actually goes into a woe for those who reject. He gives three examples of the previous command of rejection. Here's what it's going to be like for a city who has rejected me. And by the way, here are three cities that have already rejected. He shows them that there have been cities who have already been under the judgment of God. Two of them we don't know much about. The third we know a whole lot about. The first two cities, Chorazin and Bethsaida, are on the northern portion of the Sea of Galilee, only three miles from the city of Capernaum. I've actually stood in the city of Chorazin, stood in the first century synagogue that they have uh, dug up. It was at one time a very busy Jewish village. No doubt many of the citizens of this village who went to that synagogue that I stood in were part of the group who were fed by the bread and fishes that Jesus fed on the day he fed the 5,000. Just outside the city was where that miracle took place. Bethsaida was the hometown of Peter, Andrew, James, and John, a fishing village on the northern edge of the Sea of Galilee. No doubt they heard a lot of Jesus' preaching and seen his miracles. Jesus says both of these cities are under God's judgment because they have rejected me. If the works had been done in Tyre and Sidon, which was a Gentile region, they would have long ago repented. In the judgment day, there will be a heavier judgment upon them on, than on the pagan cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, two facts come out of Jesus' statement, and listen to these two facts. I know our time is, is going away. One, there are degrees of punishment in the judgment of God. Just like there are degrees of reward in heaven. I don't know how this works, but Jesus said, more tolerable. That means there are some who in the judgment will receive more judgment. Number two, a fact that Jesus says here, those who receive more opportunity, more light, and reject what they have been given will experience more severe judgment of God. Here's the application. If you come to church like this and hear week in and week out of the grace and mercy of God and the seriousness of sin, and you walk out here and reject the light you are given in the judgment day in hell and the lake of fire, there will be placed upon you more judgment than on the pagan, idolatrous, spiritually dark murderer in the streets of Dubai. I, I don't understand. Other than the fact that I know that God hates hypocrites. One more city that Jesus mentions in verse 15 and 16. And thou, Caperna, who are lifted up to heaven, shalt be thrust down to hell. 
the hometown of Jesus, the place where Peter set up his home, the beautiful synagogue that we've seen even in Luke already, this place that is lifted up with pride and arrogance will be thrown down. Jesus will say the same thing about the satanic city of Babylon led by the Antichrist in the book of Revelation. You who are lifted up, I will cast you down. Not only does God hate hypocrisy, but can you listen to this? God hates self-righteous, religious, prideful, arrogant people who think they are fine and can make it on their own. In some ways, more so than the sinful, blinded, wretched tramp who is lost in paganism and idolatry. These two verses, these few verses are, are difficult for me to see other than the fact that we know to those who have been given light, too much is given, much is required. It would be better, and I think I, I have right to say this, it would be better for you to have not come today and not heard the truth and to go into eternity in darkness in the punishment of God with judgment than for you to hear the voice of the gospel preached to you and walk away stubborn and arrogant and reject God. Jesus says it'll be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah than for you. And Jesus says in verse 16, he states that the responsibility that we have to represent Jesus, to hear and respond to the disciples of Jesus, is to hear and respond to Jesus himself. This is interesting because a Jew would never have presumed to be the same as God. Yet Jesus is showing that there is an inner connection between he and his disciples. So when a disciple walks into the city, it is just like Jesus is walking into that city. We have a high responsibility. We carry with us the presence of Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. And that's serious. We represent the face of Jesus on this earth. We should take that seriously and see how important that is. As we jump into the jungles of this lost and dying world, we carry him with us. And that's all we need. Father, I pray as we close today, we have a dangerous task ahead of us. We are in a world that is, that is very... Um, spiritually in opposition to the truth. And the message of Jesus Christ, the gospel message that we have is, is a serious message. And Lord, we have a task of our loved ones and family and friends and those that we work with to carry the message of Jesus Christ to them and to show forth, yes, the, the, the characteristics of, of the fruit of the Spirit and to live out the the Ten Commandments in, in our life and, and to do what is right, but we also come as representatives of Jesus Christ himself. And Lord, I pray that you'd give us the courage and the strength to stand for what we believe in, to not get afraid, to, to be careful, but um, not get cluttered with the things of this life. And maybe there's some, some disciples here today that they've been distracted there are some cares in their life. There's some weights that are pulling them down from following you. Um, maybe there are some here today who are pretending. And they hear week in and week out the message of Jesus Christ and the seriousness of sin and living for Christ. And yet they walk out continuing to live in their sin and closed hearted. Lord, you, you hate hypocrisy. You hate self-righteousness. And you have come to those who know they're sick and need a physician. And Lord, I pray that you would break hearts and help us to see the seriousness of our journey and our trip to, to represent Jesus Christ in a lost and dying world. Thank you that we have all that we need in Jesus. With heads bowed and eyes closed, instrumentalists are going to play here in just a moment, just a hymn of invitation. We're not going to sing. But before we leave, I, I do like to have an opportunity of, of prayer and reflection and an opportunity for you to go quietly to the Lord in prayer. You can pray in your seat. Some, some people come forward in an invitation like this and pray up at front. But I want to give you an opportunity to just um, reflect whatever God has dealt with your heart about before we close with a final prayer.
as she begins to play and you're seated where you are. Would God have his way? You could be here today and you know the gospel, but you're still working your own way to heaven. The Bible says it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but only according to his mercy that he saved us. Will you accept Christ? You, you've come under the, under the preaching of God's word that it is Jesus and Jesus alone. It's not a popular message. And the Holy Spirit is speaking to your heart. Will you trust Christ before it's too late? It is appointed to demand once to die and after this the judgment. Will you listen? You heed the gospel message? There could be some homes today that are ravaged by sin and selfishness and the gospels come to, to pronounce peace. It's more than just a picture you hang up on the wall or a Bible that you pull out and put on the, on the table. It's, it's living Jesus Christ out of your life, dealing with sin, asking for forgiveness, and learning to love through Christ. Is there peace in your home? song says have thine own way Lord have thine own way is he the master in your life I'm going to ask that she play through one more time then we'll close in a word of prayer Father, thank you for the opportunity that we can sit under your word um, and that we can use it as a mirror to reflect upon our own hearts or where we are. Lord, offend us. Offend us through your word that we would get things right and that we would deal with sin that is in our life and not allow it to linger and keep us trapped. Lord, help those who have heard the light and heard the, the gospel of peace today, the message. Uh, Lord, would they heed its warning and obey and um, accept Christ as your Savior. Be with disciples that as we go into a very dark world that is in opposition to truth, that we would be bold as lambs in the midst of wolves, knowing that we have Jesus Christ that is with us and will guide us even through the hurts and the pains that this life may offer. We know that you're in control and that you love us and care for us. And we are to share Jesus Christ on our journey. In Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. God bless you. You are dismissed.